0: hey what's up everyone it is pastor marcus here from the storychurchproject.com welcome to the Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening i hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today Marcus here. I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast. Today's topic is absolutely important and it's absolutely amazing. and I absolutely can't wait to to get into it. And what we want to talk about today is um, how political should an Adventist be? Like, is there a line somewhere or is there not? I have no idea. So I'm actually really excited because I'm not alone today. I am joined by lawyer and church history professor, Nicholas Miller. Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you,
1: Marcos. It's good to be with you.
0: Awesome, man. Look, I can't wait to have this conversation because um, while this is an area that I do think about quite a lot, it's not an area that I have put the amount of thought, I think, uh, or, or emphasis into figuring out as I should have. So this podcast episode I'm actually gonna be learning just as much as our listeners so I'm really excited about this man Um, before we dive in though can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, the legend of Nick Miller (laughs) The
1: legend of Nick Miller well uh, it's not much of a legend but the story is of my life Uh, I'm interested in both theology and law Um, I started more years ago than I care to remember as a theology major at Pacific Union College in California and uh, there I developed an interest in religious liberty in church and state and I realized if I wanted to work in the area probably getting a law degree would be the best thing to do so I went off to New York City and uh, studied law and uh, became a lawyer, uh, worked for about a dozen years in the legal field uh, for government uh, so I have worked for the, both the state uh, and now work for the church and developed an expertise in what we call constitutional law and then eventually worked for organizations focusing specifically on the First Amendment and uh, issues of religious freedom. Um, After about 13 or 14 years I had the privilege of being sponsored for a PhD in church history and did a dissertation on the religious influences from the Protestant Reformation on the formation of America's church state arrangement and uh, so I have studied the theology and I've studied the law and I've studied the history and even then I have to say I feel like a beginner each of those fields is so deep Um, but it has been helpful in giving me a a sense of both where Christianity has come from and the Adventist Church in particular in dealing with issues of of church and state. And now, as you say, I I teach at the Adventist Seminary at Andrews in the Church History Department and also practice law as the legal counsel uh, for the Lake Union and in both of those roles I continue to to deal with the issues of church and state and religion and politics.
0: Man, it sounds like we got the perfect guy uh, <laughs> for well, um, for this. Well, to be honest with you, because um, at the beginning of the year, I sent out just, you know, to all the listeners of the podcast to just send in their questions, you know, any questions that people had. And I did a Q&A episode where I answered questions. But some of the questions I looked at and I was like, OK, that might be a little bit above my head. And this was one of them. And I immediately thought I got to interview Nick Miller for this one. And uh, so I'm really excited to have you on the show, man. Now before, uh, there's a few, well, not a few, just one more, just one more question uh, before we get into the topic, which I'm really eager to get into. Uh, but I'm really curious as to um, what, a, what does a professor do when not professing? <laughs> uh,
1: well, this one, uh, uh, sometimes I get a research and writing semester. And um, Berrien Springs is not known for its wonderful, beautiful winters, (laughs) and so I've taken my research and writing semester and brought it down here to the lovely island of Puerto Rico, where I've always wanted to learn Spanish. Nice. So I'm studying Spanish, I'm teaching a church history class, and uh, spending some time in the sunshine and the beach, and uh, getting some research and writing done as well, so... That's what I do when I'm not professing in the classroom.
0: <laughs> so when you're when the professor is not professing, he's professing in Puerto Rico. That's, uh, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Well, hey, I hope you enjoy the island. That's where my family's from. And uh, you know, make sure you eat some good um alcapurrias and uh, and pasteles. Uh, you'll you'll gain a few pounds while you're there, man. It'll be and good the fun.
1: mangoes are falling from the trees. Oh uh, yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, man. You know, those island mangoes, like they're amazing because um, I remember the first time I ate a mango fresh off a tree on an island, I had to literally bite the mango and drink at the same time because it was just <laughs> dripping. It was so juicy. Amazing stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's do this, Nick. I, I want to dive into this. I want to give this some really good time because like this is a thing. Like this topic is becoming more and more relevant. Um you know, when I was, you know, just, just 10 years ago, politics was like the most boring thing in the planet to me. Uh, but even now, with um, with the social justice movement and Donald Trump in office and, you know, globalism and nationalism constantly butting heads, this seems to be a thing that everyone, it's like on everyone's sort of, you know radar they want to talk about it uh, affected you know people who have been and you know sort of putting up with systemic issues um have been speaking out more boldly i'm thinking you know of movements like black lives matter and even just before then a few years ago we had the occupy wall street thing and regardless of what people think about those movements the point is politics is a thing that people are diving into um And I'm really curious as to what what does it look like for an Adventist to, you know, like the relationship between being a a Seventh-day Adventist and and the political narratives around us. Uh, But I want to start simple and then work our way up to some pretty heavy questions. Um, So let's start with an Adventist view, like an overview, if there is one, um, of, you know, political involvement for the follower of Jesus. Well,
1: yeah, that is, that is starting with the question most broadly. Um, it's, it, you know, it's hard to just answer that question in the abstract. I suppose I might point to a couple of biblical texts uh, that provide us guidance, uh, G- especially uh, Jesus in his talking about uh, the two kingdoms, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Uh, Adventists have taken seriously the idea of the two realms of uh, needing to focus on our work with the church and spiritual things and uh, to to focus primarily on the Kingdom of God, but there also has been a, a at least a secondary theme of yes, we are also citizens of this world and yes, we do have obligations to Caesar and in Christ's day that may have been just to pay taxes and obey the laws, but in a representative democracy, um, your obligations to Caesar may involve a bit more than that, right? Hmm, In a republic where the government is of the people and by the people and for the people, uh, the people have some say in public policy and in voting. So even from the very earliest days of Adventism, there's been some sense that we should have uh, some kind of public involvement, though there has been a rapidly evolving and changing discussion about what that should look like
0: yeah well that's actually the next question I was going to to touch on um, is you know what is what is the history of Adventism and politics like what did it look like in our early days and how has it evolved over time so
1: it's a good question because the history has been um, a moving target and we haven't always held the same view Uh, I'll try to sketch a very brief picture of our early days. Um, Adventism arose out of the Millerite movement of uh, the Great Disappointment of 1844, and there were those in early Adventism who had been involved in what we call social justice issues, uh, especially abolition of slavery. You may have heard that some of our pioneers operated... Uh, stops on the Underground Railway. John Byington, our first General Conference President, did that. But in truth, most early Seventh-day Adventists had moved away a bit from their political activism on this uh, because with the urgency of Christ's Second Coming, they saw that all social problems would be solved in a few short years or even months Mm. by Christ's coming and what was the point of trying to do anything, whether it be free the slaves or end alcohol or fix working conditions, um, when Christ would be here. Now a couple of things changed that. One, Christ didn't return in 1844. Um, Still there was strong uh, views of the coming, uh, second coming still. And I think the second thing that happened was the Civil War came along and ended slavery which was almost unthinkable at the time mm. that, that there could be moral progress and I think after the Civil War you began to see Adventists who perhaps thought they'd washed their hands completely of, of political involvement or public issue involvement suddenly begin to reconsider that and to see that yeah even though Christ may come and eventually set everything right maybe there were things we could do in the short term Uh, to help both advance the gospel and advance the conditions under which the gospel could be heard more fully and those conditions would include freeing people like the slaves or or giving education to the blacks who were being discriminated against and uh, also preventing people from drinking alcohol which was being used to abuse women and children And so slowly, early Adventists began to move back into realms of uh, public involvement, mainly in those two areas, uh, educating uh, the freed slaves in the South and working for the passage of prohibition laws and and against alcohol use.
0: Now, I find that transition that you just mentioned really, really interesting because kind of the picture that you're painting is um, you've got Adventists who... Um, you know, this, this group of people who are like, hey, you know what? Jesus is coming soon. Let's just focus on that because that's going to fix everything anyway. Uh, so they step out of the being involved in social civil issues. Um, and then slowly they inch their way back in because they realize, yes, Jesus is the ultimate hope, but we should still work to alleviate and help. And, you know, because that in turn spreads the gospel. Um, so that's an interesting transition because uh, throughout my life, I've been an Adventist all my life. Um, I, I have encountered people who are still in the first camp who, who will say, "Look, you know, it's all about the return of Jesus. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. Forget about anything here on earth. You know, if you talk about social justice, if you talk about um, anything to do with you know the 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 dispossessed, the oppressed, or anything of that nature." then you're no longer focusing on the gospel and we should focus on the gospel Uh, i'm sure you've encountered that as well so as you explain that transition from you know advent is going back into being involved in 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 these civil issues uh i'm curious how even like even after that transition back it seems that at least for one segment of the church um, maybe the transition didn't take place or, or maybe it hasn't been communicated. I, does that make sense? Because it's like I do yeah. encounter that quite a bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's actually explained by a further historical development in the 1920s and 30s. So my belief is that most of our church were actively involved in, for instance, the prohibition movement um, in the 1890s and early 1900s um and their theology while they still had a strong sense of the apocalyptic and christ was coming soon that was married with another theological emphasis that was just as strong i would say and that was something called the moral government of god theme mm-hmm. um more colloquially as adventists we know it as the great controversy theme but it this moral government of god idea pre-existed adventism and it was the belief that God operated his government in relation to humanity and the universe according to principles of justice and morality that humanity and the universe could appreciate and could mm. see. And God, in fact, opened his government up. You know, this is, in fact, what part of the sanctuary message is about. God, in his judgments, opens his judgments to the world and lets everyone see that, in fact, he has been fair and just and good. And... Um, This caused people who believed this to view that, well, if God operated his governments morally, then then presumably he expected human governments to operate their governments morally, Mm -hmm. and that governments should stand up for righteousness and justice, and therefore things like slavery should be actively opposed. And if you were going to be a citizen of God's moral government of the universe, then that same citizenship required you to press for justice and morality in earthly governments. Even if those governments were going to be swallowed up and done away with, uh, as a citizen of the heavenly uh, moral government, uh, you should act to advance those principles um, and bring the kingdom of God, not as in a theocracy in implementing spiritual standards and laws but in issues of what we call natural justice and natural right mm. uh, we should implement that here and and most Adventists I would say that most Adventists understood this and it wasn't until the transition of the nineteen tens and twenties when Ellen White died and where American Christian fundamentalism uh, had a growing influence on Adventism that a good part of the church actually began to back away from social engagement and involvement. And that's a kind of another story in itself,
0: yeah. well, look, i want to I want to poke at that a little bit more because I think that's important. but i want to step back here for a sec because um just a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago, I, I interviewed um. We we had a, a a whole podcast episode on whether local churches should be involved in social justice with Nathan Brown, and um, Nathan made a point in the interview where he said that uh, as he was talking about justice and the biblical view of justice, that as you know one of the one of the um, calls that we see in scripture is that Christians should aim to be agents of reversal um agents of reversal in the suffering in the world that's around us and I f- I find that your description of the early Adventists and sort of how they they viewed themselves as hey yes these empires are going to be destroyed but in the meantime we should work to reverse the suffering that people are encountering um, I-, I find that that is a really powerful identity to have as people you know like to see ourselves as a movement of of reversal and the suffering in the world and how that ties into the great controversy and and even the Sabbath and um, the health message, all of those things sort of tie into that. Uh, so I'm really curious, um, as a millennial who's passionate about justice and who's passionate about humanitarian, you know, uh, service and all these things, to to maybe understand a little bit more. How, how did we lose such a beautiful and relevant and powerful identity is that?
1: Well, that's a a great question. And um, again, history provides us an insight. Um, The larger historical context is we're coming to the end of the 19th century and Christianity in America is experiencing a bit of an identity crisis. Um, Modernism, the scientific method has become widespread and prevalent in society. And the Christians are having to respond to it. You know, faith, in a world of scientific certainty and positivism, um, faith is uh, generally looked down on. And the question of certainty and the need for certainty comes to the forefront. And Christianity divides into two camps. Uh, The liberals, who say that our certainty is based on our subjective experiences and our our thoughts and feelings and there's not really a propositional uh, set of truths in the Bible that we can really fully know um, versus the conservative Christians who went into the fundamentalist camp and said no we can have certainty we have a verbally inspired scripture that uh, God you know essentially dictated to humanity Um, and Christianity began to divide itself largely into those two camps and a critical part for our discussion today is that the liberals took with them the social aspects of the gospel Mm. and turned the gospel entirely into the social gospel and in reaction the conservative fundamentalists um, basically saw the dangers of that but overreacted and said the gospel is only about spiritual change and heavenly salvation and uh, fundamentalism was centered in the South and it had its own political reasons to try to separate morality and politics. Uh, Segregation was popular in the South, they didn't want the churches challenging that and so the southerners began to talk not just about the separation of church and state, well in their minds the separation of church and state meant that the church should not criticize moral issues in the state. Hmm. Um, Whereas our pioneers in the North, we believe strongly in an institutional separation of church and state, but we still believed uh, that the church could critique public moral issues like slavery, like alcohol, but as we began to be influenced by fundamentalism, this distinction between church and state becoming a separation between the state and morality began to come into our own ranks, and after Ellen White died, the 1920s and 1930s, we began to take on this fundamentalist view of scripture, of knowledge, and essentially of having a conservative social outlook. So we no longer employed women ministers or had women officers in our conferences, where we used to have during Ellen White's lifetime. We began to segregate some of our institutions that previously hadn't been segregated. Um, In effect, we went from being a moderately, a pragmatically progressive uh, social outlook as a people to one that became increasingly conservative as a people Hmm. as we headed into the 20s and 30s.
0: Wow. That's that's incredible, man, because when I, when I try and think about Adventist identity today, and, and I don't want to jump ahead here because we're, we're going to come back to this, but I, t- I try to think of Adventist identity today. Um, one of the challenges that a lot of millennials have with Adventism is that it seems to um, have, and, and and not Adventism as a narrative, but Adventism as a movement to local churches and culture and things like that. We seem to have little to no impact whatsoever in in our communities Um, or in the world around us we we don't have a voice in any of the big issues that are you know moving the culture today but what you're describing is that this is actually a perversion of Adventism this is this is a Adventism that's kind of lost its way it's lost its identity because our actual identity when you go back is we were these pragmatically progressive active involved people and it wasn't because of, you know, oh, we're Christians and we're nice and we want to be involved. It was because of our theological sort of worldview that really moved us in that direction.
1: Yes, I think that's a fair way of stating it. And I don't want to overstate it. Um, We were never a church of sort of political actions. You know, each of our churches was a political action center. Mm. We definitely had a view that the church's primary role was to preach the gospel to evangelize to bring sinners to christ uh to bring people to a knowledge of the bible but having done that we also believed that there was definitely a social dimension and a social duty that came along with the gospel Hmm. Um, and uh, so we were seeking to make citizens of heaven but to actuate those citizens of heaven here on earth yeah so there's yeah. this careful balance between the two i mean we realized we weren't the same thing as the salvation army i mean there are churches that focus almost exclusively mm. on issues of social betterment and as i look at the issues we were involved in, we weren't involved in every issue you know that we weren't just changers of every bad thing that was out there but we we tended to focus on issues that a would help people live better lives in this world but B were also connected with helping making them citizens of the next world yes so for instance the the slavery um, color line question we were educating the slaves when it was illegal, or, or, or the freed slaves, when it was still illegal and dangerous to do so. Hmm. Um, and that education would both help make them better citizens in this world, but would also expose them to the gospel, and enable them to read the Bible for themselves. Hmm. Anti-alcohol was another one. It certainly um, helped defend and protect women and children from the abuse of drunken men and also the misuse of resources that should have gone to clothing and education. But it also allowed people to have clarity of mind and thought so that they could understand the Bible and the gospel. Yeah. And so there seemed to be two criteria, both helping people in this world but helping them in a way that would also help them and connect them with the world to come.
0: Yes. And I love that, man, because I, I think – like that balance is so important. Like it's it's huge. Um, one of the one of the things that I've I've often struggled with uh, some of my my peers who are really really into the whole like social justice thing. And and I'm look I'm cool with that. But um, sometimes I get the sense that there's a there's there's an overemphasis on on tackling every social issue, and there is that balance where it's like look if we fixed every single human problem in the world today. We'd have a thousand new one, new ones by noon tomorrow. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the the real, real problem is the human heart, and and only the gospel has a solution for that. There's there's nothing outside of it, so we can't like downplay that or 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 push it to the side. The the you know communication of the gospel, the invitation, you know, for for to be born again. All those things are super important, uh, but then at the same time. Uh, I see the value in being involved, and I see the and, and I see the danger in in not being connected or or identified with the suffering. Um, like I'll I'll give some examples, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on on some of these things. So I'm thinking, you know, like you just going through Adventist history, uh, the little bit that I know in this particular sphere of um, um, Adventism during the Jim Crow era, and how really the church in in many ways. Um, Modeled what the world was doing during that time with segregation, and it, it, leading up probably to the most dramatic example of it would be the Lucy um, Bayard story, where you know this lady was refused admission to an Adventist hospital because she was black, and and she died. Um, I think also of um, you know like the the uh, the mainstream Adventist Church in in Germany that sort of perpetuated hatred of Jews. And, um, you know, and, and, and even the Rwandan genocide uh, as well. One of the first, uh, if, I, if I recall the details correctly, the first um, clergyman tried for crimes in Rwanda, crimes against humanity, was a ordained Seventh-day Adventist pastor um, who, who drove the rebels and, and, and got these, you know, people into a church and then they were slaughtered there. Uh, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, he, he kind of trapped them there on purpose being a pastor, you know, they 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 kind of put their confidence in him. Um, and so I can see like how, yeah, we got to focus on the gospel. But when we separate it from the social element, um, we can get to the point where we actually damage the spread of the gospel in, in, in like, in such powerful ways, you know, like, yeah, like how, how do you how do you feel about that? That's kind of sort of what floats around in my head. It's it's not like a pretty picture, but how do you feel about that tension there? Well,
1: yeah, the, the incidents you've raised are all very troubling, and um, as a historian, it was considering a number of these stories that um, caused me to look more closely at our heritage and to realize mm. that it was more activist that, that than many people think. I been especially troubled by the story of the Adventist Church in in Germany during World War II and there were um, in our publications and and magazines of the day we certainly spoke favorably of uh, the leadership of the Nazi party um, we did not do anything that I'm aware of as an institution to oppose them, although, in fairness, uh, that may have been a, a, you know, a, a suicide effort. Um, <laughs> but, and the fact is is that when, they Christian, when the leadership came to the Christian churches and said, turn, o- turn over the Jews in your midst… Unfortunately and sadly, the Adventist Church has complied, and that mm. is, the, you know, the Confessing Church, that's where they drew the line in the sand, Barth and Bonhoeffer, yeah. and their colleagues uh, refused to do so. So it was certainly it's something possible to do, and yet we didn't do it, and mm. as a historian and thinker about theology, I, it, it forced me to examine my Adventist heritage and conscience and say, what, what went wrong? and um and i think part of that story is this fundamentalism this separation of the moral and the spiritual and saying christians should only be concerned with their own spiritual status and the spiritual status of their church um was part of the problem it you can have your spiritual concerns almost become a moral monomania so mm. for instance in in germany Um, Adventists have a eschatological scenario where there are you know Sunday laws and the Sabbath is challenged and uh, the uh, medieval Catholic persecution is uh, is reinstituted and there's quite a a vivid picture we have. Well in Germany um, Hitler was a vegetarian and a teetoler he gave Adventist soldiers Saturday mornings off to go to church And he was generally uh, opposed to the Catholic Church, put many priests in prison anyway, Mm. and was opposed to the communists, the godless communists. So many Adventists looked around, and all these boxes for their eschatological scenario were not checked. Mm. And they said, well, you know, what's, what's to be concerned with here? And in a sense, our eschatological scenario about the Sabbath had become this moral monomania that gave us blinders mm. to anything else. And it really showed that we don't perhaps understand the principles behind uh, Sabbath and Sunday and our eschatological issues, that whenever man wants to step into the place of God, whether it be in Sabbath and Sunday laws or in other areas, we should oppose it. Yeah. And so we can't just be focused on the literal letter, we have to see the larger principle mm. and whenever humanity invades basic justice and carries out injustice then they are stepping into the role of God and any good Adventist should say uh, raise a hand and protest yeah. and we didn't then and I've used that as a, as a lesson or an illustration or an impetus to do more of that now
0: mm that's powerful man that's really powerful so let me let me move this forward a little bit because i want to start to get a good sort of grasp on what it looks like to have a balanced perspective between political involvement and and obviously you know kingdom of god um so you know you mentioned how fundamentalism sort of created this split between spiritual world and and the and, and and you know the earthly empires that we inhabit Um, so let's, let's say, all right, let's say fundamentalism, we're going to put you over here. Um, and we're going to, we're going to bridge this gap that shouldn't be there. What, what would that look like? Uh, especially like I'm thinking, especially today, like in today's political climate, there's so much division. And I'm sure that the conversation on that is probably way more complex than we have time for, but for some basic principles, like what would it look like for someone to say, my priority is the kingdom of heaven but i still want to be involved here what, what would that look like today
1: hmm. well that's a you know it's a really good question and it's sort of the sixty four thousand dollar question what <laughs> you know how does it how does it play out practically in our world today and i think a general answer is um the political parties that are out there right now none of them are based on a biblical foundation I think that's safe to say Hmm. and that means that they go to one extreme or another Hmm. and also what it means is that each political party will have some legitimate concerns that it either takes too far or it mixes with things that are problematic for a Christian. Um, What this means in practical terms is that a Christian platform is going to be some kind of mixture, a combination of that found in opposing parties. Mm. So a a Christian that fully aligns with, you know, here in America we've got the Democratic, the left-wing, and the Republican, right-wing parties, and if you're a Christian Adventist here in America and you fully align with one party or the other, then you probably have problems. You're not thinking biblically, Mm. you're thinking uh, like a partisan of one camp or another. And so when I speak with my conference leaders in the Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Department and we're talking about promoting an issue or taking a stand on an issue, I try to encourage them to take a stand on at least two issues. One. from one, one that will be identified with one party and another that will be identified with the opposing party. Mm. So it becomes clear that we are not being partisan. So I'll, right. I'll give you a concrete example, um, immigration reform. If we were gonna speak in defense and in support of immigrants, we're instantly gonna be labeled as being part of or supporting what party?
0: Oh, the Democrats.
1: The Democrats, yeah. right? and so but for many members in our church we have a growing hispanic community here in the united states uh... they're having friends relative loved loved ones being captured for minor offenses or even less
0: and Mm.
1: being sent out of the country it seems very draconian Can the church say nothing um, when it's losing young people and family members overseas in a very dramatic and apparently inhumane, what seems to be an inhumane way? Hmm. Uh, The Bible is full of texts about treating the immigrant and the alien fairly and justly, and even with love. Can the church have no voice on this um, just because it might be looked at as political? I think we sh- I think we can and should say things carefully uh, and in a balanced way. But when we speak about immigration, we may also, at the same time, want to speak about marriage and family. Mm. So if I talk about traditional marriage and marriage being between a man and a woman and the importance of defending that, um, you know, scenario and the the right of individuals and businesses and churches to um, protect and promote that, what political party is that associated with?
0: Yeah, definitely well, the Republicans. Republicans,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you can somehow talk about marriage and family and immigration at the same time and show even the moral connection between the two, then people will suddenly realize, okay, well maybe you're not just promoting the DNC or you're not just promoting which is the Democratic National you know, Committee
0: hmm. uh,
1: or the RNC, the Republican National Committee maybe you really are speaking from the KJV uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? um, and, and so I think that's what thoughtful Christians need to do these days yeah is when they speak to an issue speak to it in a way that shows their particular Christian moral perspective on it and combine it with other issues Uh, or do it in a way that shows they're not being partisan, but that they're carrying out their Christian moral convictions
0: in the public sphere. I I love that, man. And it's interesting because that's actually something that I've... It's a tension that I've had in my own life, and I've often felt like, you know, maybe... um, Maybe it's a... Maybe I I like the tension because it's sort of a cop-out. And so hearing you explain it that way has actually been really helpful because um, I have found myself unable to fully uh fully identify with the left or the right uh, mm-hmm. and so it's very you know if if you if you look at me uh, if you look at my um, podcast list I've got Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and uh-huh. I've also got Trevor Noah and Russell brand you know and um <laughs> it's just I, I like listening to the voices from both camps I like you know, sort of tugging back and forth between their ideas and sort of developing my own in that. But when it comes even down to the very basic issue of voting, um I, I find I, I don't identify with either party. Uh, I don't really fully fit in because I'm trying to look at it through a biblical filter. And I see, oh, here are things with the right that I totally agree with, uh, that I disagree with on the left, but then on the other side here are things in the left that are pretty aligned with the biblical ethic that i don't see in the right so it's hard to sort of say okay well um here's where i belong and i guess sometimes in my head i felt like oh you know maybe it's sort of a cop-out like what do you really do with that um but the way you describe it you know like holding the two intention and saying well look stand for issues on both sides so that it's clear that you're standing on scripture and not on partisan lines i think is a really helpful perspective um, for me, the, I guess the next sort of question would be, um, what do you do when it comes to like voting for a, for a candidate, for example, right? Um, do you sort of weigh it up in, in a scale like, okay, this person supports the most issues that I think are, are, are positive and biblical versus this person? Uh, so I'll go with that or is there a better way? Well,
1: uh, I'll answer that question, but let me just step back for a moment. Um, to um, tag onto the point that you just ended with about seeing that we're in between two competing sides that we can't fully embrace Hmm. and I want to put that in prophetic perspective because it's not it's not just Nick Miller's observation I believe but I think we have a prophetic heritage Coming out of the book of Daniel, if you study the book of uh, Daniel, chapter 11, which is one of the more mysterious books, it talks a lot about the King of the North and the King of the South. Yes. And there's some conflict and differing views of of what those kings are. Though in Adventism, there's generally a consensus that the King of the North represents the medieval absolutist outlook of the um, the absolutist moral outlook of the medieval church um, and the King of the South there's some a little bit more division on this but I think the spirit of prophecy and Bible study points towards it being um, secularism atheism um, the French the principles of the French Revolution hmm. uh, which then become widespread in the 20th century through communism and if you think about that for a moment that those two ideological entities sort of represent the left and the right. Um, The left with its materialism, secularism, ideological relativism, uh, which we see more on the left wing of our politics, and on the right uh, the sense of the importance of tradition, of absolute morals, of security uh, represents the right wing of our politics. And neither of those things can we fully embrace, right? The people Mm. of God are in between those two competing, conflicting powers. So we shouldn't be surprised that we are surrounded on both sides, right? We, We don't just have one opponent, we have two opponents, and they represent two contrasting and competing but ultimately both false ideological systems. And the kingdom of God in the middle has Points held by both these groups, but in tension and harmony, rather mm. than in the extreme versions that they exist out there. So, there's a whole study you could do on that, and I won't spend the time to spin it out further. But, but I wanted to give you the sense that there was, in fact, a deeper prophetic framework to understanding this left-right divide that makes a lot of sense.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, and I and I think that. You know, like this this divide is going to get it's obviously going to get bigger and bigger as as we get close to the end of time. And uh, while, while I'm not an expert on on this issue, one of the things that I've commonly thought and and shared, because um, I see a lot of people, even even within Adventism, picking their side, like, oh, I'm a Republican, oh, I'm a Democrat. Oh, um, and And then there's this sort of animosity between them. Um, and, and so, you know, what you'll hear is, you know, you'll hear some, you know, on the, on the sort of like the right wing Republican side say, oh, it's, it's the Democrats who are going to bring in, um, the Antichrist in the new world order because the Democrats are, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing for all of these, you know, globalism and, you know, this, uh, sort of um social justice idea where you know all all religions can be one and they can all be united you know all this pretty stuff and so they'll say it's the democrats who are going to do it and then i'll hear the democrats kind of peel back and say well wait a minute it's the republicans that want to unify church and state you know they're the ones that are Mm -hmm. trying to bring those two together so it's going to be the republic and then it's like there's this fight like no it's you no it's you Mm -hmm. um and i happen to think that it's it's it's, it's neither and it's both that it's in the clash between the two that we will see end time events begin to unfold. So personally, I find myself really uncomfortable with saying, well, I'm picking a side of the political aisle and standing on that because I think it's actually going to be the clash of the two that's going to bring about a lot of the end time events that we that we. You know that we are familiar with through prophecy now i don't know if that's true i can't prove that um i don't preach that but it's certainly what i think the clash of the two
1: certainly makes each become more extreme Mm. um but if you do study the book of both daniel and revelation it does appear that it's the king of the north that eventually tries to implement and coerce worship absolutely yeah beats the king of the south and i do think we see I mean we see that now. Liberalism is not a very robust system at the end of the day in terms of uh, secular liberalism. I, I view myself as something of a political classical liberal, but that's different than what secular liberal politics has become. And um, essentially it was defeated you know, in the 2016-15 um, uh, election here in the U.S., because people think it's largely bankrupt, and the elites still cling on to it. but the uh, but the common people don't. And rather than swinging back to the moderate Protestant position that America was founded on, we are swinging back more towards the authoritarian uh, moral, absolutist rigidity of 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 uh, the middle ages. yeah, uh, but that but your question about who who do you vote for, and you know, do you sum up, Uh, the good and bad positions and how do you think about this? Um, It's a great question and one that's hard to answer in the abstract. Uh, A couple of things. We've been given guidance that we should never vote for people who we know uh, will take away freedoms, especially religious freedoms, Mm -hmm. right? Politicians who indicate that they're willing to impose, say, the Christian identity of America Uh, in some public manner, that just cuts against uh, directly our view of the the character of God, of how church and state should relate and we've even been told that should we vote for such a person we become responsible for the um, diminishment, uh, for the loss of freedoms that that follow from that. So that's a very sobering thought I think. Uh, Another standard for me is leaders aren't just um, the sum of the list of their ideas and plans. Leaders are people with integrity and character or maybe a lack of integrity and character and both their willingness to follow through on their plans and promises as well as their ability to handle new challenges and unforeseen circumstances in a fair even-handed honest way which is incredibly important for government is dependent on the kind of person they are, the kind of character they have, the integrity with which they live. And Christians who say integrity doesn't matter for leadership, we're, not, we're electing a, a senator or a president and not a pastor, really don't understand the critical connection between moral integrity and political leadership and how important they are. Mm. So when you're electing people you should try to elect good people not just people with good ideas. What are their characters like? What are their track records like? And finally I would say, if you don't have a good choice, you don't have to vote. In other mm. words, <clears throat> there's often a talk about choosing the lesser of two evils. Well, if both candidates really don't pass your test, then there's no, nothing wrong in choosing to abstain. Our early pioneers used to argue over whether you had to vote at all, not whether you must vote. Hmm. And they came to the conclusion that we could and we should vote when we can and when we can do it morally and, and cast our vote on the side of right. Yeah. But none of them would ever ever said, oh, you have to vote under all circumstances. Hmm. That's something, that's a position we seem to have created more recently.
0: So what would you say then to someone who says, you know, for example, let's, you know, let's take a look at the Trump and Hillary thing. Uh, there was this huge tension uh, with people who didn't see either candidate as good, you know? So some people looked at Hillary and sort of her track record and, you know, negative things that were being... Um, expressed there and said, look, look, uh, Hillary, I'm not going to vote for her because I don't think she's trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera. And then they looked at Trump and said, yeah, definitely not. I mean, you know, don't really need to explain. We all know the story there. Um, So they decided, you know what, I'm just not going to vote. And but then there's people who will come around and say, well, if you choose not to vote, then then you sort of forfeit your ability to have any say in the in the in the in the conversation of where America is headed um and so you know for example um someone said well i didn't vote for trump or hillary but yet you know in the aftermath of this administration i want to share where i think we are and where i think we're headed and then you've got these voices to say well you don't have the right because you you forfeited that by choosing not to vote how do you how do you engage that um idea or that mentality well it's a fair
1: question
0: and it's actually where I'm at because I had
1: convictions that would not allow me to vote for either candidate I was concerned about life and LGBT issues on the one hand uh, but I was also concerned about basic morality and um, the treatment of women and minorities and handicapped people um, and uh, basic integrity on the other and so it a saying of Christ's came to my mind um, that I thought might relate here. He says, um, it must be, it may be that woes must come, but woe to him by whom they come, uh, meaning mm. maybe we will have a bad president one way or the other, but I don't have to have a role in making that person president. Mm. And I felt justified in uh, abstaining. I mean, I voted that presidential election, but I voted down the ballot and not for the top, not for the top position, Um, but I don't think that I forfeit my rights as an American citizen now to speak out on issues of public policy and hold accountable whoever was elected Mm. uh, by the majority of people. So, you know, I think it's, I, I don't think it's something that disqualifies you from continuing uh, your engagement on issues of public morality and concern.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's certainly one of those things where, um, I, I think if if you've got like a a really good sort of rationale and and uh, I, I'm thinking of a, I'm searching for a better word than rationale, but it's the only one I can think of at 10:55 p.m. perf Australian time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you got a really good rationale. For, for, for why you made that decision, then I, I don't see how that does it. I, I suppose I could maybe see it if someone's just lazy and doesn't want to vote and then they want to throw their ideas out there. Um, but I certainly agree with you. Now, I will have a few more questions that I want to touch on before, before we wrap up, Nick. Um, the first one is one of the things that Adventists historically are really passionate about is the separation of church and state. Um, and and keeping those two separate. And you've already touched on, you know, there's there's a separation of church and state that is necessary. Um, but then there's a, a sense in which you can take it too far, where in which you know the church has no say whatsoever. We don't we don't want to go that far. Um, so I guess my question, just sort of leading into this uh, idea of Adventists reclaiming and 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 reembracing a a involvement um in the political narrative of our world is at what point and and i guess i'm i'm asking a, a practical question here um not so much a, a, a academic one but a practical one um at what point can a person can an adventist who's involved in politics um say okay uh, i think there's this sort of like this line that i'm crossing between being involved And I don't know if I'm formulating this question correctly, but I think you're getting my point between being involved in politics and maybe going too far to the point, you know, sort of like how evangelicals are today, where they're where they're actually vibing for power, for political power. Is there a practical line where you know that, you know, these these are some red flags that I can look out for where my involvement is becoming a little bit more than involvement?
1: Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, I think that there's there's two or three things to look out for we, we certainly are cautioned against full-scale um, involvement in partisan politics you know insofar as I become a member and promoter of a particular political party um... it becomes more difficult for me to speak as a an objective neutral um participant in a discussion about a public moral issue Hmm. right so if I'm known as being a supporter for everything democratic then whatever I say about abortion or marriage or immigration or gun control is going to be seen more as a reflection of my commitment to democratic politics than it is to a genuine um attempt to take biblical teachings and illuminate the world with them Hmm. um I I also think that, um, you know, we have to rediscover something called, um, Ellen White called moral philosophy, mm. um, which I um, might describe in terms of uh, these days of public ethics, uh, a sense of public justice, maybe public morality or the morality is such a, such a um, um, controversial word. Um, But the idea is, how can a Christian involve himself in public issues if he or she just uses the Bible, right? What does the separation Mm -hmm. of church and state mean? And in part, it means, well, there should be an institutional separation of church and state. But it goes beyond that, and it really means you, a segment, shouldn't be imposing through politics its view of morality that it gains from its holy books, Mm -hmm. right? So the Christian shouldn't impose those truths that can be found only in the Bible, and neither should the Muslim uh, impose those truths that can be found only in the Quran. that you can really only access or share if you're part of that faith community. So what does that mean? Does does it mean the Christian can't raise moral issues, or does it mean when the Christian raises moral issues, he has to be sure those are found not only in the Bible, but that those moral issues can be supported and justified from what I call this public moral ethic. Mm -hmm. And um, in the past, sometimes we refer to it with terms like can be derived from the natural law in Ellen White's day uh, it was something called moral philosophy Mm -hmm. and she actually said Adventist young people this is one of the three things they should especially study Uh, moral philosophy was the first on her list and then the Bible and uh, physical education but moral philosophy gives you the basis to talk about issues of public morality uh, that that aren't contrary to your biblical faith or perspective are complementary mm. uh, to it, and may flow from it, but allows you to articulate it in what we call publicly accessible terms, terms that people who don't share your faith can understand. Yeah. And yeah. we can't, if we use, if we say we want to impose this biblical teaching, you know, on, on marriage or on health issues, then we're going down the wrong track. Mm but we can use the language of moral philosophy of a public moral ethic to support our public policy positions and and we should do our pioneers did it and uh, they would be very surprised that we're not doing more of it i think
0: yeah well that actually makes a lot of sense because i was reading an article the other day about um the prohibition early adventist prohibition uh the motivations behind it and i thought it was really interesting that the early adventists did not oppose according to the article um, they didn't oppose alcohol on the grounds that it's a sin, uh, it's sort of from a Christian perspective. Um, they opposed it, uh, according to the article, it was it was a civil issue. Um, yes, and they opposed it as a civil issue. So it wasn't like the Adventists were running around with some Bible verses, like a bunch of Bible thumping fundamentalists saying, you know, alcohol bad. Um but yes. rather, they looked at the effects of alcohol. The systemic effects that it had on communities, on families, on women, on children, um, and on the economics of poorer communities. And those were the issues that they were standing against alcohol on, um, which, you know, which gave them, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It gave them a, 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 um, a really compelling rationale to stand against alcohol, uh, that to be honest, myself having been raised in church uh, with the more fundamentalist influence, I never encountered that perspective. The only perspective I ever encountered was alcohol bad. That's it. Right. You know, here's because a Bible, Bible verse, alcohol bad. bad. Right. That's it. You know. um, but no one ever said to me, well, we, you know, our church has opposed alcohol because it perpetuates the suffering of families and, and and you know, all these, you know, sort of civil um, social humanitarian issues. It was never about mm-hmm. that. It was always alcohol bad um so yeah i I find that really compelling you know to say hey let's get familiar with you know it's you know we can we can take moral stances on things but if your moral stance on something is exclusively well this is my moral ethic because i'm a christian and therefore you should have this moral ethic as well i can see how that's starting to cross a line of church and state absolutely yeah that's a really helpful perspective
1: You're describing a civil public morality uh, Mm. that they drew on. Some people say you can't legislate morality, but that's just a myth. We do all the time. Um, The laws are based on justice, and the central question of justice is one of uh, what is right and wrong, what is morality. But it needs to be a civil public morality, not a what we would call a spiritual morality that the mm. Bible sets out, you know, don't do this or God will be unhappy. Well, yeah. that's something between you and God. Uh, there needs to be more of a justification for it in civil terms before it becomes public policy or law.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. That, that's really, really helpful. Thanks for sharing that. I got one more question uh, yeah. and then we'll wrap up. And, you know, at the story church project, the one of my main focuses is the local church because I believe the local church is uh, to quote KLB DeWall, the future of Adventism. Um, and I think that empowering and equipping the local church to, to fulfill its mission is the bottom line for helping yes. Adventism to thrive and move into the world and into the culture. And so I want to close with a question about the local church because I think that's a great place to end. Um, so local churches... You know, I just want to picture like an Adventist local church anywhere, um, you know, America, Australia, UK, wherever. um, And this local church says, all right, look, we want to make a difference in our community. We want to be involved in our community and speak life into these civil issues. Um, What would be some tips or advice, anything that you could say to that local church who's looking to get involved in these issues and speak life into them uh, to, to guide them in that journey?
1: Great question. Where does the rubber meet the road, right? Mm. Um, You know, there's so many issues out there and especially the local church can't be involved in all of them. And yet you want to identify one or two issues where you could contribute. Mm. Um, There's a um, sociologist of religion, I think his name is James White, who talks about millennials getting involved in the church and he talks about the five H's that inspire them um, to get involved and uh, I'm not sure I can remember all five of them but it has to do with uh, homelessness, uh, health, um, uh, history, the questions of justice and racism Mm. uh, in in a community, Um, human trafficking um, and I'm not sure if hunger, hunger. So there, these are five practical issues that your local church, depending on the community that it's in, one or more of these may be more prominent. Mm. And it's not that your local church may be able to open a homeless shelter or a food kitchen, but maybe your members can volunteer once every week or two at a place that has one and is operating one. And it, that'll do two or three things. It connects your church with the community and with non-Adventist groups that you share a common goal with. It will help your young people see that you're practically involved and connected with and, and care about the community, and it'll just give new opportunities uh, for sharing and caring for, for the people that are actually out there and that you're and that you're wanting to help. So, I don't think there's a single answer for every church I think it's a question of becoming more outwardly uh, focused and looking for those one or two things the felt needs of your community that you're in a position to respond to and to get outside your four walls and not things that are directly evangelistic you know the, the, the prophecy seminar and the evangelistic campaign hopefully those things are gonna happen and they should happen but you need to say you need to plant the seeds yeah. you need to make the connections that help these other things actually work yeah um so those those are yeah Yeah. Of the needs of the community and and where your church can, can practically contribute is is i think the answer
0: oh man that's that's really really helpful as you were sharing that um i remembered a uh I read on Twitter this past week, I think it was. I don't know if you know Sean Brace. He's a pastor in New England. And um, he shared this thing on Twitter that I thought was really insightful. It kind of made me stop and ponder for a little while. He said that um, when you're making your 10-year plan with your church, rather than asking uh, what is this church going to look like in 10 years, ask what is this community going to look like in 10 years because we've been here. Um, yeah. And I think that those steps that you've given us there, you know, focusing on something simple, uh, you know, one or two things and, and, you know, identifying those felt needs in the community and getting involved in them. You know, there's sort of the no strings attached approach um, is really, really helpful. And I would highly encourage anyone listening, whether you're an elder, a pastor, administrator, whatever it might be, um, to definitely look, you know, it's look in your community and, and you don't have to do a survey. Oftentimes you can just go to your local council. Um, yeah, and and you can get demographic data from there on needs and things like that. So, yeah, that's really, really helpful. Nick, it's been it's been awesome, man. It's been really helpful. It's been amazing. I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation with you. It's cleared up some things for me. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway is um, knowing the difference between, uh, you know the 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 uh, institutional separation of church and state, which is necessary um and and knowing to differentiate that from the church having a voice in in matters of the state which which is definitely necessary as well and that was a really a moral, a yeah. moral voice yeah, a moral, moral voice. voice yeah
1: maybe i can do a shout out to uh, those of you listening to this uh if you would like to continue this discussion we're having a major conference at andrews university um in the fall october seventeenth 17 nineteenth. And the title of the conference is Jesus and Politics. Nice. Um, The subtitle is uh, uh, Religious Liberty and Biblical Justice Today. Nice. And we're going to be having a bunch of panels and speakers exploring even more deeply this basic question of what is the Christian's role in our heated political climate today? What perspectives can we get from the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels? Uh, that what messages are there for people of both parties and all parties and every party uh, as to how a Christian should act in the political world today. So um, look out for that, anyone who's going to be in the Michigan Berrien Springs area in uh, October of of this coming year.
0: I love it, man. That sounds amazing. Nick, before you go, um, I want to ask um, two questions. First, you've written a couple of books. Can you please um, plug them in? and let us know what they are. And second, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, how can they, if they wanna ask some more questions or or get some more insight?
1: Sure, yeah, I'll start with the last question first. Probably the easiest of my addresses to remember is uh, my first name, Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, Nicholas at Andrews. I teach at Andrews University, so it's andrews.edu is my email. And then I've written a couple of books that relate to the discussions we've had today. Uh, One is called The Reformation and the Remnant, which is mostly a book about theological history, the roots of Adventist beliefs and ideas, and the Protestant Reformation but I use the past as a prism to talk about current issues in the church. Some of them are sort of theological and biblical, uh, including creation and evolution, the ordination of women. But I also look at some public policy questions about uh, how we should relate to church and state, um, including issues of LGBT and and same-sex marriage in relation to religious freedom. Um, The second book that came out just about a year ago is called 500 Years of Protest, Um, from Martin Luther to modern civil rights and that book is entirely about issues of church and state and religion and politics and begins with Martin Luther and talks about the development of both religious freedom and civil liberties in the West um, up through uh, Europe and America and all the way up to the election of uh, one Donald Trump and I talk about the prophetic implications uh, of all of that so
0: That sounds Those amazing, man.
1: Books. You can find them on Amazon and
0: uh, in all good ABCs if there's one near you. Um, so, yeah. I'll definitely link them in the show notes uh, underneath and also on the blog page. Uh, so anyone listening, if you just want to find the link, uh, you can link them on the blog page at thestorychurchproject.com slash blog or the show notes on SoundCloud and iTunes, and that should take you straight there. Uh, Nick, man, it's been Again, absolutely amazing having you on the podcast uh, for today. And um, we're going to wrap up, but I want to invite everyone who's listening as well. If this is your first time at the Story Church Project, um, listening to the podcast or um, maybe you have been, but you've not yet subscribed to the Story Church Project uh, newsletter, head over to the storychurchproject.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter and you get a free book, man. I mean, seriously, why not? You know, free things are always cool. So anyways, thank you for hanging out and I'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.